Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. How often do you play it safe by beating yourself up? Are you hard on yourself when feeling anxious about things that have happened or could happen? Self-compassion is the willingness to respond to your pain and suffering in the same way a good friend of yours might. That sounds easy, right? But you know it isn't. In this episode, I chat with Paul Gilbert, the developer of compassion-focused therapy. Paul and I chat about what compassion is and what isn't, and we dive into specific blocks to practice self-compassion. If you believe that being kind with yourself makes you a weak person, that you need to be hard on yourself to get things done. If you believe that you don't deserve kindness, then make sure to listen to this episode. Before we jump onto the conversation with Paul, I want to remind all of you who are high achievers, strivers, and engage in perfectionistic behaviors to register for the upcoming online class, Act Beyond Perfectionism, in which I will share a specific act micro skills to get better at managing that proneness to do things right and perfectly. This class has six specific modules targeting the core processes behind perfectionistic actions. Imagine how it will be if you can give your best, work hard, and push yourself without sacrificing your well-being. I will teach you acceptance and commitment skills to do more of what matters without hurting your relationships or that relationship with yourself. To find your rhythm across different areas of your life. To ditch other people's definitions of success to pursue your own. To register to act beyond perfectionism, you need to go to the website www.thisisdrz.com. Select the option online courses and then select Act Beyond Perfectionism. And now, without further ado, let's jump onto the conversation with Paul Gilbert. I wish you a great day and see you next week. Bye bye. So, here is something that I would be curious to hear from you. When you think about the foundation of self compassion or your personal journey when developing compassion focused therapy, What was going on in your life? What's the story behind CFT? 
Well, we were doing a lot of um, psychological therapies using cognitive behavior therapy, as you know, as you mm-hmm. came to the workshop. And um, in cognitive behavior therapy, you help people to identify certain types of thinking that are associated with their difficulties. So people who are depressed tend to have negative views of themselves, the world, and the future. And so what you do is you help people stand back and come up with alternatives. Okay, I feel I'm a failure, but in reality, if I stand back, my friends would say to me, look, you've achieved this and you, you've got a reasonably good marriage and so on. So they, the only people could do that, I was working with people who found that extremely difficult to do. And it didn't really help them so much. And um, one asked this lefty, so how, how do you hear that in your mind when you're trying to be helpful to yourself? How do you hear it in your mind? Uh, speak to me as you actually hear it. And she said, okay, come on. You're doing cognitive therapy, aren't you? You've got a husband who loves you. You've had a job. You've got from children. Look at the evidence. And so what I discovered was people could do their cognitive things there was a lot of hostility in how they were doing it. They were trying to force themselves to change their thinking. I said, well, why don't you keep a cognitive thing, but this time create a really caring voice in your ear. Hear a caring voice in your ear. I really have a motivation to be helpful and supportive. Create that motivation. Rather than trying to focus on the evidence and get yourself to believe something, focus on the desire to be helpful. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that's, not, that's weak. That's not going to help me. Kindness isn't going to help me. So, uh, and the third problem turned out that sometimes people struggle with compassion because when they start to become compassionate to themselves, it touches parts of themselves that have been alone for a long time. They start getting in touch with pain. So, some of the my patients, right, people I see. When they begin to have self-compassion, it isn't, oh, isn't this great? I feel better. It's actually, I feel much worse because now I'm touching into my care system. I'm touching into my emotional memories of not feeling cared about, not feeling loved. So that's how we started. And then we turned it into a therapy. It's incredible how those moments of being stuck in the world that we do with clients are the source for us to step back and see what can we do differently? Why this is not working? What can I change, right? Yeah. Um, were there any other philosophical models or other frames that were influenced in CFT, like Buddhist or mindfulness or psychodynamic approaches or Jan's approach to psychology? Were there any other influencers of CFT behind the curtains? Yeah, because many, many, because I became interested in um, Buddhism in the decks of the Beatles, so Chans and Demi. Oh, remember? Of course I remember Yellow Submarine. <laughs> yeah, the Beatles. I used to like to go to the the meditation sessions because all the young ladies used to go. So it's the <laughs> While I was there, I kind of got very interested in the whole process of transcendental meditation. And then subsequently, uh, mindfulness developed and I became, but I've been very interested in Buddhism. I've been to various monasteries and retreats and that sort of thing. So yes, Buddhism is quite an important part of my personal life. I'm not a Buddhist, but I do see that the Buddhist way of thinking about the mind is very important, very helpful. And I also did four years in a Jungian hospital. Um, so I was training. Wow. So I've, I've done quite a bit of psychedelic training as well. So quite a few things, really. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I can see, I can see. These days, how does your personal practice of self-compassion look? From the moment you open your eyes to the moment you fell asleep. If I am shadowing you, if I'm witnessing how you move through your day, what will I see you doing? Yes, well, we teach, um, there are different ways in which you can teach self-compassion. So it's, there different, basically, there are different things you need to be able to do for yourself, such as self-validation or self-support or self-guidance or whatever. So I, one of the things that I sometimes might do is in my garden, the top of my garden, I have a, a Buddha, a statue of Buddha. Mm. What a lovely smile on the face. So sometimes about it, fed up, I'll go and have a rant at my Buddha. I say, oh, this world is a dreadful place. All the suffering, I'm very pissed off. Blah, 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 blah. Rant, 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 rant. And then at the end of it, I say, thank you so much for listening to me. Yes, great. I'm sorry. And it just sits there with a smile. It doesn't say anything. You know, it's, um, I always have this imagination that this, this Buddha image, this figure would just listen and validate the fact that, that at that moment I'm quite cross with the world, you know, and that's fine. So self-compassion really is about working out what it is you need in order to help you. So sometimes it's about soothing. Other times it's about being listened to. And other times it's about being validated uh, and so on. So self-compassion is very much about understanding what it is you need for particular kinds of issues that you're having to deal with. <clears throat> I love this practice. I would put that into action myself. I absolutely love it. <laughs> you always have to thank the Buddha at the end. Thank you so much. But... <laughs> no, especially after watching the news, right? You know, it's a hobby of mine to watch news. I can be watching news all day. So you can imagine how I feel after that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and my work is specialized on acceptance and commitment therapy for all range of fear-based struggles, anxiety-based struggles. And one of the core interventions we do is values-based exposures. We help people to get in contact with their fears in a compassionate and manageable way. We add self-compassion and we encourage people to face their fears in a gentle manner. How do you see the relationship between self-compassion practices and exposure practices? Given that practice is self-compassion, it's really hard because we have to face our pain. I cannot be self-compassion without facing my struggle, my own hurt, my own pain. We call that exposure in the anxiety world. How do you see that intertwine of processes there? Well, I think the first thing is to understand how we define compassion. So compassion is defined as sensitivity to suffering with a commitment to try to in self and others with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent it. There's, so there's two parts to it. One is that we move towards pain, we move towards distress, not away from it. And you need a degree of courage and wisdom to do that. The first movement of compassion is always stressful. It's not a pleasant thing. It's a stressful thing. Yeah. And then the second part of it is the wisdom to know what will be helpful because we can do all kinds of things that are not very helpful. You know, if I see somebody fall into a river and I think I must save them, and I jump in, and I think, oh, no, swim. Um, that's reckless. <laughs> very courageous, but not very wise. On yeah. the other hand, I can know how to swim, and to say, but I, I'm too frightened to jump in, so I don't have the courage. So in CFT, you must have courage and wisdom to be able to engage with suffering and so forth. True, that is true. Sometimes um, the way that I think of self-compassion practices, it's like 
it has four elements. I see pain. I feel the pain. I wish relief from the pain and I want to do something about it. So that leads me to this question. When we teach some compassion practices to some of the clients that I work with, sometimes we hear these responses like it's too weak. It feels fake. Um, it feels too simplistic or I am being just complacent. I'm being too permissive with myself. And I'm sure you have heard some of those responses in which people may understand the importance of being gentle and caring with themselves and the knowledge they are hearing. But it feels all, it feels awkward. And their mind comes with all these thoughts. How would you respond to those types of thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about you're going to love yourself and all that. That's not at all. Don't go down that road. We start, we, 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 we start off with an example. We say to people, look, you see it as weak or whatever, but let me take you through an example. Imagine a friend. Do you bring a friend to mind? Yes. Okay. What is it you like about your friend? Oh, I like a friend because, and they tell you. Now, imagine your friend phones you up and they says they've got to go to hospital for a, an operation, but they're phobic. They can't go. And then they're, they're in a terrible state. How would you be with your friend? And the client usually says, oh, I'd be concerned for them and I'd listen to them and whatever. And then you say, and what would you do? Oh, well, I'd probably offer to go with them. So why would you do that? Well, because if you're very frightened and you've got somebody who cares about you and helps you, it gives you the courage to go, doesn't it? And you say, yes, that's compassion. Sensitivity mm-hmm. to pain and the courage to take action. That's what it is. There's nothing fluffy about it. Think of a firefighter going into a house to rescue somebody from burning, risking their lives. What is weak about that? There's nothing weak about compassion. Compassion is the most strongest, the wisest of all of our motives because it is the motive that will seek to heal pain. That's what it does. It's not about let me be kind and blah, blah, blah. But the main thing is developing this courage and this wisdom to engage with pain. Mm-hmm. 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 You have to hammer it a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. A subtammer. <laughs> Is that okay if I ask a sassy question? Yes, of course you can, yeah. Okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, let me give you a little background. Um, we mess up all the time. I have a collection of messy moments, times in which I have said a wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. So I think there are different types of pain that we go through in life. And sometimes, unintentionally, we do cause pain to others. I may have hurt my friend's feelings. I may have an argument with my partner and I handle it in a way that I regret. Um, I may have a scream at my child. And then there is this fear that the self-compassion is getting me off the hook of this wrong action, this wrongdoing that I did, but that I did wrong. I did scream, right? I didn't protect my child. I destroyed a relationship that I shouldn't have. How would you respond to that? Well, I think it's a great question, Trisha, because you have to make a distinction between shame and guilt. So right. Shame is all about me, me, and oh, mm-hmm. but forget me. So supposing I have an affair and my wife discovers it, just imagine. So that if I had a shame response, I'd say, oh, I, you know, I was very bad to do that. I shouldn't have done that. And people would think I'm bad and my wife would think I'm bad. I, I go and buy some flowers and try and make it up to her or whatever. Now, that's all about me, me, me. I feel I'm bad. You think I'm bad. Blah, 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 blah. That's yeah. shit. That's right. It isn't like that. Guilt 
is when we have a genuine sadness for the harm that we've done. It's not about me. It's about recognizing the pain that we've caused the other person. And that brings up a sense of remorse and sadness. You don't get remorse and sadness and shame because it's all anxiety and attacking yourself and I'm no good, blah, blah. Whereas in guilt, that guilt comes from compassion. That comes from caring, from recognizing I didn't really want to do that. I'd lost control of my mind or I lost control of my emotions because I wasn't mindful or whatever. And that's caused pain. And mm -hmm. I'm sad about that. And I'm going to try and repair it if I can. But it doesn't make me a bad person. But it does make me a person that I have to be careful because otherwise I can be hurtful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that, the distinction between shame and guilt, a very important one. A lot of the literature in compassion focused therapy, whether it's compassion for oneself or for the others, they talk a lot about the acceptance of emotions and how we can become witness of our own pain in different ways, right? There are different exercises to do that. But sometimes my clients ask, how do we repair? How will that repairing look? Let's say that a couple of months ago, I had an awful fight with my boyfriend. And despite doing everything I could to handle it with caring, I lost my mind and I'm sticking with my hands and screaming from the top of my lungs. Not nice, right? Not nice. And I didn't apologize. But for people listening to us, if we talk about repairing, as part of the self-compassion model or compassion-focused therapy, how, how does it look when we talk about repairing our actions? Do you mean the um, repairing of the, your relationship or repair it within yourself? That's a great question. Let's say both. So um, we have um, three things in CFT. We, we have assertiveness, forgiveness, and apology. So these are three things that in any kind of relationship, you need to be able to be assertive because otherwise people won't know what you think. You will be to stand up for yourself, defend yourself. Assertiveness is very important, but you also need to be able to be forgiving for people who maybe hurt you. How mm -hmm. are you forgiving? And you're not, forgiving isn't about letting them off the hook. It's about letting go of your rage towards them. Forgiving is letting go, letting go of vengeance, basically. I, I, I won't hold this against you. I might not. I may not like you, I may not want to see you again, but I'm not going to hold poisonous thoughts towards you, angry thoughts towards you. That's forgiveness. And the other one is apology, recognizing actually I, I own up to what I've done. You know, I realize that's been hurtful to you and I will try and do what I can to. So when people know that you are genuinely concerned and you genuinely see that you've been harmful, then they are in a position to forgive you. People would tend to forgive if they see that you are genuinely remorseful. Yeah. Won't forgive you if they think it's just about shame or that you don't really care. So those three things tend to go together. And it's the same with yourself, right? Part of what it is, is being humble. Part of what it is is to say, you know, I have a brain like everybody else and my brain like anybody else can become extremely aggressive. Okay. I don't want it to be like that. I didn't build it like that. I didn't choose to have a brain like that. It just is. Now, if I sometimes lose it, it means I'm human. Mm -hmm. I'd love to be an angel, wouldn't I? That every day I'm in this calm position. I never lose my temper. I'm always <laughs> loving. There's, but that's not real. You know, if we're going to be real, we have to have what you say, the messy bits. We have to be able to deal with the messy bits. That's what it is to be human. Okay. Being human is we have the, the dark and the, uh, you know, both sides, 
Yeah, yeah, coexisting, coexisting. Yeah, so speaking about forgiveness, assertiveness, and apologizing, people may have sometimes an easier time forgiving others, but self-forgiveness is a very different experience. Let me give you a case or a situation or a life experience. Hundreds of years ago, my friend had a very tough choice to make. Um, because of an accident, their house got on fire and the house is a two-story home. She manages to get out and then she tries to grab her children, but she can't. So she's outside looking at the house, people are holding her. And she knows she doesn't have time to rescue both of them. There are two kids inside the house. People are trying to go into the house. They managed to rescue only one child, not a second one. And this was an awful thing that happened to this family, an awful experience. Then you have this struggle with self-forgiveness. I think of self-forgiveness as a personal choice that we make to ourselves. It's a commitment that I make to myself. But in the experience when a person's life, given some context like this, is not easy. It's a very, very hard choice. What would you say to that when people have experienced traumatic events in which they did the best they could? It's not their fault. Yeah, yeah, it's not their fault. Other things happen. We, we, we also do a lot of work in the prisons where people have done horrible things. Um, mm-hmm. so the first thing about the example that you give, right, is that sometimes people don't forgive themselves because holding that anger towards themselves stops them from having to think about and be in touch with the actual anger that there was a fire in the first place. Yeah. Stops them to happy to deal with the grief. Okay. So in a way, they don't actually fully grieve because they just, they stay in this angry position all the time so that they get blocked up grief. And the second part of it is really of helping them think about how would you like your how would you like how would you like to remember your child in other words, sorry how would your child like you to remember them mm. your child's growing up now and they can see you from heaven or something what do you think they would like for you would they like to say yes you stay angry you should have saved me or would they say please release you because mm-hmm. i love you and you are released because it wasn't your fault can you imagine your child being like that so you will remember them as they would love to be remembered. Always remember the person as they would like to be remembered. Your child will want to be remembered as a loving, wonderful child. Your child will not want to be remembered as a hating child. Your child would love to be remembered. Your child would love to be remembered as somebody who says, look, mom, I knew you couldn't do anything. I understand that. Now that produces an immense amount of grieving. And that can be a process towards forgiveness, to remember your that person in the way that they would like to be remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful response. And um, can we chat a little bit about self-compassion and anger? Yeah. We all experience moments of anger and sometimes rage. And the challenge is that people feel that the whole world has wronged me. This person has done this wrong to me. Why did I do this? Why are they treating me like that? And the anger, how will you approach that from a self-compassion perspective? Because the first thing is you have different types of anger. Yeah. You can have frustrative anger or you could have envy and anger. You know, how come that person's doing well and I'm not doing well? How come they got all the breaks done? You know, how come they look beautiful and I don't? Okay. So the first thing is being clear about what kind of anger are you wanting to do. 
And so you how people think about, okay, suppose you can hurt that person. What is it that, but how do you better? I just feel better. Okay, but let's think about that. Let's think about what is it about feeling better? What is it that you actually want? Okay. And so you help them begin to see that vengeful anger in the end is quite harmful. It doesn't actually take you anywhere that sustains you or fulfills you. It's a sort of a temporary fix, really. It's like eating the chocolate cake. It's great at the time, but then thereafter. Then the next thing is you say to them, okay, well, what would be your greatest fear about letting your anger go? What would really worry you? Okay, what worries you? Oh, and let them off the hook. Okay, well, why would that worry you? Well, because that means I'm a person that doesn't... And then you end, you know, I have to stay angry because then I'm staying true to the memory of the whatever it is. So you you help them see the interconnected meanings around hanging on to the being um, vengeful. You know, yeah. it makes me feel powerful. I can't bear the thought that they've got away with it. I mean, there's so many different processes, but the first thing is to identify the function of the anger because there's lots of different functions for anger. for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you are feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!